inspiring day. This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by... Hey guys, I got an idea. Let's go to Denny's right after this. I'm on board. We need a little comfort food. Hey, it's been a big week for Denny's, actually. They're gonna they're spreading the wealth. They're heading out to the United Kingdom. How do you think they order moons over my hammy in the United Kingdom, Franklin? I don't, I don't know, but I hope... I <laughs> order the All-American Slam. I hope that remains in the, in the menu in the, in the motherland. <laughs> I hope, I hope do you they think they'll go strong. ahead and keep it? I hope so. I would like to think so. You know they'll keep the pot roast milk. Come on, you're the linguist of the group, Franklin. What, how, how would you, how would you, how would you order that over there? Not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a good Cockney accent. God, it would have been worth it. I've been a showstopper. Let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm gonna have to go supersize. We need a political revolution, and we will make America great again. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, the conversation about portable benefits for independent contractors is heating up with a bill filed that would force employers to pay into a fund. The Supreme Court will rule on several cases this session that impact operators and their employees. An attorney from the Jackson Lewis Law Firm joins us for expert analysis. And as always, we'll get you up to speed on top items from the legislative scorecard, including the governor's decision in California over a wage-shaming bill. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sean Kelly, with Align Public Strategies partners, Joe Keefover to my right, Franklin Coley sitting across the table, and our guy in the D.C. bubble, Joe Rinzel, has once again escaped the bubble, and he's joining us from San Francisco. Okay, guys, we're getting our first look at a portable benefits fund bill, this one coming out of the state of Washington from a representative there named Monica Stonier. Uh, I guess what people are going to want to know is, does this have any shot at passing, um, and, and, and should they even pay attention to it? They should pay attention to it. it it's unclear probably does not have a chance of passing, even in a state like Washington. So why does it matter? It matters because it is a start of this conversation that is going to play out over a long time, many months, many years. And that conversation is focused on with the changing nature of the workforce. And really, they're talking about gig economy workers, so independent contractors that drive for Uber or, um, you know, work for another uh, on-demand platform. But quite frankly, this also can be applied to restaurant and retail operations as well. In fact, the SEIU executive, David Roth, who is kind of the mastermind of this and has been talking about it for years, that they were going to roll out something in the Pacific Northwest, has talked about, has talked about it in the context of gig economy workers, but also in the context of the worker that has a part-time job at the convenience store, has a part-time job at the QSR, and then has a part-time job working at a hotel or somewhere else. And so in, in all three of those jobs, let's say in this instance, that worker does not have benefits in, in any of those. And maybe they drive for Uber on the side, so maybe he or she has four jobs. They don't qualify for benefits in any of those jobs, and so his solution, his proposal, and that's what we're seeing introduced in the Washington State Legislature, is government coming in and setting up a structure not unlike Social Security where the government is now responsible for collecting funds, collecting essentially a tax that goes into a fund that then employees 
can pull down paid time off or health care or whatever out of that fund, regardless of what job they're in. And so portable benefits, that's the concept. There's a fund, there's a benefit pool, regardless of what job they're in at any given time, they can pull down from and utilize those benefits. So this is a this is a representative in Washington who got some national attention because she wrote an op-ed piece in Fortune magazine that got a lot of people talking about it within the last week or so. Um, we had to look up this representative, Joe Kefauver, but but does it matter who, who she is because she's kind of really helped to launch this conversation even further? Yeah, n- not really. I mean, you know, as Franklin said, this is you know, this is not likely going to happen here, but it, we talk a lot in this office about the life cycle of issues, and this is an important step on the life cycle of this benefits issue. And, you know, we, you th- we, 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 we dismiss this. If we dismiss this, we run the ri- same risk of folks that dismissed $15 minimum wage four years ago or mandated scheduling four years ago. It sounded far-fetched, but, you know, it takes a while for these policy ideas to germinate to be discussed among academia, researchers, policy wonks, and then somewhere along that life cycle, you know, friendly legislators start to introduce this legislation and drive that conversation. And and it takes a while once these ideas percolate for the exact right conditions in any given city, state, or at the federal level where there's the right mix of legislators sitting in there that are open to these policies receptive. But but I think it's important from, from a macro, you know, the reason why this has legs, this concept has legs ultimately, is, you know, you think about what the sharing economy, the gig economy, the online, the, the modern economy has has very quickly made our tax system, our sales tax-based system, obsolete in a very short period of time. It's made our, you know, regulatory, a lot of our regulatory framework obsolete in a very short period of time. And similarly, it's made our... It's, it's changing just as quickly our employment models. And those things that are attached to our current employment models, such as benefits and things like that, are going to change quickly with it. So th- this conversation is going to happen probably faster. And so the employer community, then the folks that we work for, you know, have to grapple with this at some point. We can dismiss this bill in Washington is not going anywhere. That would be silly. That would be playing checkers, not chess, right? We know this is this, this, this conversation's coming. It's going to be a national conversation. We'll be focused on entry-level employers. It, it, it's going to be a national conversation. And the employment commu- employer community has to determine whether they're going to participate, especially the entry-level employer community. has to, Are we going to participate in that conversation and try to shape it, or are we going to sit back and let it happen t- to us, right? And so employers can't have it both ways. We can't say we're against this kind of pro rata empl- benefit paying but we're also against creating a welfare state for the government to do it, right? You can't have it both ways. So it's a conversation that's coming. It's been coming for a while. It's going to come fast. The bottom line is, you know, these legislators, particularly in some of these markets on the West Coast, Northeast, et cetera, uh, they're going to pursue these these proposals. I think there's an opportunity here for uh, those uh, corporate participants in the gig economy to understand and, and perhaps learn from the past. You know, that we've had a lot of instances over the years where industries have been uh, reluctant to embrace change, to uh, look towards the future. And here you have an opportunity where, you know, if you're offering uh, flexible benefits, um, you know, opportunities for folks that participate in the gig economy that maybe have several different uh, income flows uh, and they need to be 
um, protected on the back end in terms of benefits. And, and it's something that they should consider. I think what we're more likely to see is this conversation continue in jurisdictions around the country and pieces and parts of this being adopted. Um, and then, you know, one day, certainly they hope that they get enough uh, buy-in and momentum that, you know, they can pass something statewide or even maybe at the federal level. On our last episode of Working Lunch, we played the first part of our interview with Jeff Brecker. He is one of the top attorneys in the country. They don't get much better than this, folks, on wage and hour law. He's from the Jackson Lewis Law Firm. We get it. Wage and hour law is not the most exciting topic in the world, but... Uh, It's so hard to find people who are interested in talking about wage and hour law, so I'm so glad we... Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you saw our, our ad on Craigslist. It worked out well. <laughs> we did want you to hear about the cases before the Supreme Court right now that impact employers. Jeff, as you're looking across the horizon, any other cases that you see coming in front of the Supreme Court soon that entry-level employers should be watching, looking out for, because it could impact their operations? Yes, I'd say there's two. So the one big one that was just argued is um, what we refer to as the class waiver uh, cases, and that was argued before the Supreme Court on the first day of the term on October 2nd. And the main issue in that case is, you know, employers have been hit with these huge class actions over the last 10, 15 years, um, particularly in the wage and hour um, uh, area. And, you know, they're uh, they can be big money just because of the number of people affected. And so um, one of the um, strategies that employers have have used to uh, fight uh, the, the proliferation of all of these class actions is to have arbitration agreements with um, class action uh, waivers. And, um, you know, many lawsuits are filed as class actions just for the mere pressure it puts on the employer of defense costs. Um, whether it's merit, you know, has any merit or not, but that the mere cost of defending one of those cases could be great. And so, to combat that problem, uh, employers have rolled out arbitration agreements requiring employees to arbitrate their claims instead of filing, you know, lawsuits. And included within those arbitration agreements are class action waivers that they can bring claims; they just can't bring them as class claims. And so, the arbitrator will fully hear their claim and give them their day in court, but it would be brought on an, on an individual basis. So you can imagine that uh, that is something employers would like um, as it reduces um, the risk of these um, exposure to these very large lawsuits and the defense costs. And so the court just heard argument on that and whether those are valid or invalid, the circuit courts are again split on that. Um, And uh, it looks like from the oral argument, it's going to be a very close case. So the liberal justices were were very uh, vocal, I would say, in saying that those agreements should be unenforceable. And it looks like the more uh, conservative justices were on the other side. So we'll see how that pans out, but it's going to be, you know, one of the most closely watched uh, cases. And then the, um, the second one I would say to keep your eye on is the whole issue of um, who can share in tips if you don't take a tip credit? So if you take a tip credit, as I talked about before, there's limits on who can share in tips. But what if you don't take it? What if you pay in some states like California? They don't have a tip credit. Or Oregon, they don't have a tip credit. So if you don't take a tip credit, is there any problem with 
sharing tips between back of the house and front of the house. If a server gets a tip, can the employer share a portion of those tips with the with the back of the house? Why should the servers get these huge, uh, um, you know, tips and be in a very lucrative job, and the chefs in the back get, you know, are not able to share it at all? And so that's a case that um, has been an issue that's been percolating. And um, the Ninth Circuit originally held that if you don't take a tip credit, then you can share with back of the house. Employers like that. The DOL, though, under the Obama administration, came in and said, no, 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 we don't like that rule. We don't think that rule is uh, uh, applies, and we're, and we're expressly disagreeing with it. And they issued a regulation that said you can't share with back of the house regardless of whether you take a tip credit or not. And that case was then appealed uh, or challenged. That, that regulation was challenged. And the Ninth Circuit came down and said, well, since the Department of Labor issued a regulation about it, we're going to defer to that. And so currently the Ninth Circuit has deferred to that position and does not allow the sharing of tips between back of the house and front of the house, even if you don't take a tip credit. But the Supreme Court may hear that case. A petition uh, has been filed at the Supreme Court. And that's another one big case to watch uh, because it will determine whether or not you can finally share tips between waiters and, and chefs. Jeff, before we let you go, we got to ask an important question. What's on the menu at your working lunch? Well, let's see. Today was um, Taco Thursday. <laughs> nice. Nice. It wasn't, uh, well played, Kenzie. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't uh, and it's every Thursday, so I'm, I'm kind of getting... I think a lot. A line may have a few clients that uh, have some pretty good menus out there. Recommendations. Yeah, Jeff. Thanks so much for your time. We look forward to talking to you again. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Take care. Thanks for being on the pod. It's time for the legislative scorecard. These are the top items affecting business operators around the country. As always, we begin with wages. And Franklin, why don't you take us to Puerto Rico? Yeah. The. uh Puerto Rican Secretary of Labor issued an opinion basically saying that employers weren't responsible for paying employees um, due to canceled work because of the hurricanes and other natural disasters. Um, you know, the reason I think we're flagging this is, you know, in pretty much every, in most cases around the country, the state level, employers are not required to compensate workers for natural disasters and, and uh, you know, the unexpected shuttering of, of businesses, but most do. It's obviously, you know, it's good to put some money in employees' pockets when they can't come into work and when there's a disaster going on. So um, that was notable. One other item. Um, St. You know, Paul. Yeah, St. Paul, Minnesota. We have a mayoral election going on, and they had a, they've had a candidate form, and most of the mayoral candidates, I think, you know, six, seven or so, have come out in support of a $15 an hour minimum wage, so it will create a dynamic in that city similar to what we saw in Minneapolis, where they adopted a $15 minimum wage recently. Let's switch over to paid leave and Joe Kefauver. This is your neighboring county, Prince George's County, from where you grew up. Uh, what's going on there with paid leave? Another paid leave bill. They, they had one about a year ago, um, and 
voted it down only because they rightly thought that it's, you know there should be a statewide standard. They didn't want to have a, a countywide standard. They thought the state should act. There was legislation at the time. Uh, Governor Hogan ultimately vetoed a statewide paid leave bill, so the county council has gone back to the drawing board, coming up with their own fairly generous, um, you know, an hour of leave for every 30 worked, uh, accruing up to eight a year, which is a pretty robust uh, program for uh, employers with 15 or more workers. So that ball seems to be moving. I think it'll pass. Uh, in New York City, you've got uh, the council is passing legislation. They already have a paid uh, sick leave and family leave policy on the, on the books. Um, but they're expanding that policy to apply uh, to victims of domestic violence or sexual assault. Um, so that bill, you know, it also contains a separate provision that expands the definition of a family member. Um, so they don't necessarily have to be related uh, in terms of if uh, an employee needs to provide care for somebody in their family that might not be a biological relative. So uh, that's New York City just trying to expand the scope of their existing law. So let's switch over to pay equity, and this is really an update to our lead story on last week's podcast uh, out of California. This has to do with wage shaming. We told you that the, uh, there was a bill on the governor's desk. Uh, I think I might have called out that the governor was going to veto this uh, wage shaming bill. I think some others on the line might have uh, thought differently, but uh, yep, Renzel called it right again. Do, do we need to go to the tape? to see who got that one wrong. We probably, right. should, we probably should rewind. Should we go to the tape? To see who, who had the guts to make a prediction? I'm like, you, you fence sitter. <laughs> All right, what happened? I think that was, you know, nice politics. So, yeah, the governor uh, vetoed the wage-shaming bill that would have mandated companies with more than 500 employees to submit employee wage data, uh, broken down by gender every two years. Uh, that data would have been made public, uh, and it would have created a... Uh, probably a lot of reputational challenges for some of the employers that would affect it. So just to remind everyone, this was a bill that was similar to the federal EEO one form um, that was going to require employers to disclose a bunch of uh, not only gender, but also other demographic data related to pay rates. So employers were a little worried about this one. Governor vetoed it. The conversation is over for now. Expect the conversation to continue and to see similar bills pop up and you know, back in California in the next legislature. And in Illinois, we've got a veto process underway? Yeah, the process is being started to override a veto. This is related to um, asking, asking questions about salary history. So we'll see we'll see if they can pull together the votes to override the veto. And Joe Kefauver, what are the latest developments on labor policy this week? Yeah, so a couple things uh, in D.C. this week. You know, the employer community has been uh, pursuing for some time legislation in Congress to kind of codify a lot of the rules around joint employer, so to provide clarity for employers. Uh, the House has passed the bill. There's, you know, uphill battle getting enough Democratic support in the Senate. And seeing that this week, the, the, the kind of the business employer groups kind of up the pressure on Secretary Acosta to do something at the administration, at the administrative level. Uh, to, to kind of force his hand a little bit because the legislative outcome may not be one that, that we want. So uh, increase the pressure a little bit there. Let's get to some updates out of the bubble. Rinzel, why don't you take what's going on with tax reform and Keith Favre, you take health care. Uh, we saw in, in, in some action in the Senate this week, one on health care, the uh, Lamar Alexander, Patty Murray bill that's got now 24 co-sponsors to kind of do a short-term fix, two-year fix uh, on, on the ACA. 
Um, the president was kind of for it, and the president was kind of against it, and the White House came out against it. You know, I don't, I don't know what will happen there, whether you ever see the light of day. But And this was know, all in response to the suspension of the federal subsidies? Yes, to what Trump did last week. with the, yeah, with Which in a lot of ways will potentially collapse uh, the ACA. And so this, this would have been a, a short-term two-year fix yeah, to kind of allow kind of Congress to get their, their act together. And Renzo, what about tax reform? Uh, yeah, the Senate recently passed budget rules that do that will allow for uh, future tax reform legislation to proceed with a simple majority of 51 votes. So this is kind of setting up the framework. Um, as as you may recall, that uh, that stipulation expired on September 30th uh, from the last budget cycle. So this is the new cycle uh, where they've established very similar rules where they could pass uh, potentially pass tax reform with with just a minor a, a simple majority vote. Of 51 senators uh, in the Senate side, which is important uh, with the political dynamics at work there um, in terms of what they want to advance here in the coming months in the form of tax reform. Now, that's big news for Republicans, the first big win in a while. So they'll have a little kumbaya moment. And uh, the question yeah, is whether that momentum bleeds onto other issues and maybe they revisit health care now. Yeah, I would just flag the, the Republican caucus wasted no no time after that kumbaya moment to start sniping at one another with um, some report Republicans wanting to go after tax cuts and then do kind of piecemeal tax reform, whereas the Freedom Caucus is calling for the full thing, you know, full tax reform done with tax cuts now. So we'll see how not only for this issue, but also the other issues that Joe mentioned, you know, if, if they can get momentum out of this and, and get a win. Yeah, and, 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 and really how that Freedom Caucus group plays this because, you know, traditionally Republicans have been deficit hawks and don't do things to blow, blow a hole in the deficit. And they've, you know, traditionally accused Democrats of doing that. This budget deal blows another trillion and a half dollars into the deficit. No one's even really talking about it. And Republicans kind of, kind of walked away from their you know, traditional stance as deficit hawks. I still think the Freedom Caucus will come back at some point and address that. I would think so. I mean, I think it was Paul Ryan, someone basically said if, um, you know, if Republicans can't get together in tax cuts and tax reform, then, you know, there's not a lot they could probably get together in. So um, they should they should come back and address this in a, in a meaningful way. All right. So you guys have a charity golf outing to get to, and I know you're going to need to fill up before that. It's for the kids. It is for the kids, and Franklin, you, you shoot about 120 shots, so you're going to really need to fill up. Last last chance to get a British accent on a Denny's menu item? I'm going to take a pass on that, my friend. My Cockney accent is, you were the one who was over there, Keith Offer, just a year ago. Why don't you? Um, it's Ireland, not England. They're two different things. <laughs> Frank. I'm sorry, yeah. England. And you two can't, years ago, You can't Ireland, do geography maybe, either. Maybe, maybe Governor Ireland. Brown will pass that geography shaming bill. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm sorry, it was Ireland one year ago. Two, England two years ago. It's hard to keep up with all your times out of the office. I'm, a, I'm a man, an international man of mystery. I know you are. That's it for this episode of Working Lunch. We'll talk to you again next week. Ha, 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 ha.